Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and blessings and welcome to another installment of the Just for Freedom of Space. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author Leslie Gist and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African-American experience by honoring all the people, past and present, black and white, who with faith and focus are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347-324-5552. Good evening, everyone. My name is Preston Washington. I'm your host this evening for the Gist of Freedom. And our producer, as already stated, is Leslie Gist. If you have program ideas on someone we should interview or a topic you would like to hear discussed, you can contact Leslie at Leslie, L-E-S-L-E-Y, at thegistoffreedom.com. My guests tonight are Sarah Quigley and Michael Hall. Sarah is a manuscript archivist at Emory University, and Michael Hall is a Ph.D. candidate at Emory University. And they're going to talk to us tonight about the SCLC, Southern Christian Leadership Conference Exhibition there at Emory. Good evening, Sarah and Michael. Good evening. Okay. Can you hear that me? That was today? Mike. Is that Sarah? Yes, this is Sarah. Okay, great. Welcome to the show tonight. Um, with this being June, and we've got a lot of graduations going on, a lot of young folks headed off to college, and some may be undecided about what they want to major in, what they want to do. I'd like for you guys to just take a couple of minutes to discuss with us um, your career path, how you got on your career path. Michael, you're a Ph.D. candidate, and Sarah, your manuscript archivist at Emory University. And uh, well, we start with you, Sarah. Well, um, I wound up in the archives kind of by chance, I would say. Um, I was a history major at the University of Texas at Austin um, and thought for a long time that I would take a very traditional um, career path toward academia and, you know, get my PhD and become a professor. Um, and that didn't quite work out the way I had expected, as many things in life often do. Um, and rather than pursue a PhD in history, I wound up going to library school thinking that I would um, go into a museum administration. Um, and while I was a graduate student, I had the opportunity to work with a gentleman named Jack Pope, who was a former Supreme Court Justice for the state of Texas, um, and I was helping him to put his personal papers into some kind of order so that they could be donated to Abilene Christian University. Um, and in the course of that project, just completely fell in love with archives and um, what I like to refer to as the raw material of history, the 
um, primary source material that historians and scholars use to um, craft and shape the stories that they tell us. Um, and so after that project was over and I was about to graduate um, with my master's degree, I wound up focusing my job search on archives as opposed to libraries or museums and um, over the course of the next couple of years wound my way to Atlanta and ended up at Emory. Great. Are you on a speakerphone, Sarah? I I am. Um, are you having trouble hearing us? Uh, you're just a little bit faint. Could you pick the phone up and close? We, we don't actually have a handset. Let me... Um, is that okay, helping well, at all? Yeah, while you're doing that, uh, Michael, why don't you uh, share with us your uh, career path? Um, I have an equally eclectic background. Um, so I began in literary studies. So I have an undergraduate degree from Southeastern Louisiana University in English with minors in history and Spanish. And then I went on to pursue a master's in Africana studies at Cornell with foci in African-American studies and American art. Um, then I got another fellowship to continue my studies as a PhD candidate here at Emory um, at the Graduate Institute for the Liberal Arts. And just like Sarah, I love doing archival research. I love that primary raw material because it allows you to get at certain histories, certain cultures, certain, certain societal issues in a very visceral way that students can get around if they can see a primary artifact and not just hear what someone else thinks about a certain historical period or social issue um, and wound up at the Manuscript Archives and Redbook Library because I love archives and the SLC project needed four students to work on it. So under uh, Sarah's supervision, I worked on the project from the beginning of processing it all the way through to curating the exhibit. Okay, great. Sarah, I'd like for you to um, talk to us a little bit about the history of Emory University there in Atlanta, Georgia. Are you downtown Atlanta? I'm sorry, what was that last question? I'd like for you to talk to us a little bit about the history of Emory University, which I believe, are you in downtown uh, Atlanta? Yes, we're in the Druid Hills neighborhood, um, which is near downtown. It was one of the original sort of bedroom communities of Atlanta. Um, Emory was founded in 1836 in a town called Oxford, Georgia, actually, which is uh, 10 or 15 miles outside the city limits these days. Um, it sort of struggled for a number of years and somehow managed to survive the Civil War. Um, and then in the 19-teens, as um, Emory was founded as a Methodist college, um, I should say, and in the 19-teens, as the Methodist church was looking to establish a proper university on the East Coast, um, Emory College positioned itself as the sort of natural choice for them to um, create the university that they wanted. Um, at the same time, Asa Candler, who was the founder of the Coca-Cola Corporation, um, made a donation of a million dollars and some land um, to Emory College and began the sort of long relationship between Emory and Coke. 
um, and made it possible for Emory to relocate into the city limits of Atlanta. Um, the university did not go co-ed until 1953, um, and it was finally uh, desegregated in 1963. Um, we also are fortunate to have on our campus the Center for Disease Control, um, as well as a first-rate hospital and medical school, um, as well as business and law schools. Um, that, uh, Sarah, you're, uh, my technicians told me you're still fading in and out. Um, and you say you're on a cell phone? No, we're on um, a, a speaker phone, um, some sort of fancy technology in one of the conference rooms at the library, which is why we don't have a handset. It's meant to be a conference phone. I see. So you guys are sharing a phone? Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. I can't. Hang on one second. Get any? Can you get any closer to it when you're speaking? Is this helpful at all? Okay. Just we'll keep talking. My engineers will let me know. Um, now, you uh, have this exhibition, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference exhibition, and I'm kind of curious to know that of all the colleges and universities there in Atlanta, how was Emory chosen? Um. Um, Emory was chosen um, in part because Randall Burkett, who is our curator for African American uh, collections for um, the library, reached out to SCLC um, while the organization was under the leadership of Charles Steele and um, began a relationship with him. Um, and over the course of a couple of years, just continued to be in touch with him and to express um, Emory's interest in housing the collection and um, being the permanent home for this important resource. And when um, SCLC and their board was ready to uh, seal the deal, so to speak, um, their relationship with Randall was such by that time that they were comfortable placing their materials here and felt like we would be the, the most conscientious stewards of that material. Okay, great. So talk to us a little bit about the uh, early history of SCLC. Which one of you want that one? Um, I'll, I'll feel that. So um, SCLC was founded in 1957 by Martin Luther King Jr. and um, a number of other notable leaders of the civil rights movement, including Ralph Abernathy and Joseph Lowry and Fred Shuttlesworth. They were founded in Atlanta, where Dr. King was from, and set up shops down the street from Ebenezer Baptist Church on Auburn Avenue. Um, their work in the 1960s is fairly well known. They were critically involved in planning the Selma to Montgomery March. They were um, 
leaders during the Birmingham movement. They were, of course, also leaders in Albany, Georgia, and St. Augustine, Florida, um, up until the assassination of Dr. King during the Memphis sanitation workers' strike in 1968. What happened to the organization after that is not nearly as well known, in part because their records have not been available until now. Um, I think a lot of people have the misconception that the organization closed its doors and went out of business when, in fact, they continued to work very hard and very diligently toward the realization of King's beloved community. Um, in fact, doing an incredible amount of work to expand how we conceive of the idea of civil and human rights, um, expanding it to include things like environmental justice, healthcare, and access to adequate medical care, um, and sort of non-traditional sorts of things that we don't necessarily think of when we think about the civil rights movement and we think about desegregation and voting rights. Exactly. Uh, Thelma, you mentioned some pretty heavyweight uh, Southern ministers involved in that early uh, organization. What role did Bayard Rustin play? How was and was Martin, Luther, was Martin Luther King Jr. the first choice for leader? Are you familiar with that history? Um, by the way, the engineers tell me you're sounding great now. Go okay, ahead, Mike. We found the microphones. <laughs> we found what we think are the actual microphones, and I think that that might be the reason that we sound a little clearer now. Okay, great. Yeah, the engineers tell me you're sounding great now. Uh, my question was, what role did Bayard Rustin play in the development, uh, the early development of FCLC? Um, our collection isn't really strong on that end, but uh, Bayard Rustin really served as a close advisor to Martin Luther King and really helped to shape a lot of the strategies that he ended up leading as uh, the first president of FCLC. So if you think about um, the Poor People's Campaign as an initiative or if you think about um, the Montgomery bus boycott, all these were strategies that were part of a nonviolent non strategy of, uh, achieving civil, of achieving civil rights, thinking about uh, voting rights, thinking about um, issues of poverty, which was right at the forefront of SDLC's early work. A lot of the actual strategy that was employed by SDLC was done under the tutelage of Bayard Rustin. Okay. And what was, uh, tell our audience a little bit about Bayard Rustin. Um, what was, is he an activist, a, a teacher, um, professor? Rustin, I, I, well, I, I, won't, I won't pretend to speak for Bayard Rustin, but I think he, he would he might consider himself both an activist and a teacher. Um, I would say clearly, particularly with his relationship to Martin Luther King, I think he considered himself very much a mentor. But at the end of the day, Bayard Rustin was a social activist. And a lot of, a lot of his work was exactly that. It was strategy around campaigns. It was not necessarily workshops. Um, you know what I mean? To to 
train train folks in certain ways. It was more his activism that was his, I think it's his legacy. Um, he was also he was also he did this as an openly gay black man. So he um, there was no sense in him of hiding his identity or separating his identity from his activism. There was no contradiction in it for him. Michael, the engineer is telling you have to come a little closer to the mic. Stay in front of it. My apologies. Do I sound better? Yeah, yeah. Kind of project your voice out there and stay in front of it for me. Got it. Okay. Uh, Why don't you take us into an overview of the collection of the SCLC records that you have there at Emory? Sure. Um, The records that we have here at Emory primarily document the history of the organization from 1968 up until about the mid-2000s, 2004, 2005. Um, The records from the first decade of the organization's life um, are split between the Martin Luther King Jr. Center here in Atlanta and the Martin Luther King Jr. papers that are owned by Morehouse College. Um, Because of SCLC's sort of inextricable link to King himself, the records from the organization during the period that he was president um, were sort of donated to these other institutions not long after Um, or to the King Center, rather, not long after the assassination itself. Um, So the records that we have here at Emory really illuminate what the organization was up to in the decades following the assassination and the iconic period of the Civil Rights Movement. Um, And they give us a window into how the Civil Rights Movement perpetuated itself Um, how its identity needed to change over time. Um, And there's just an amazing resource in this collection um, for topics ranging from um, abolition of the death penalty, uh, ongoing struggles for voter rights. Um, SCLC was involved very early on in AIDS education um, and awareness campaigns um, starting as early as about 1985 um, at a point where a lot of people were still not ready or willing to really recognize how devastating that disease was for um, communities in in the United States. They also um, positioned SCLP also positioned itself as a voice of conscience in global human rights issues, um, particularly in the area of anti-apartheid activism in South Africa. Um, And there's just a tremendous amount of documentation from their efforts in that regard. Uh, Joseph Lowry, the third president of SCLP, was particularly active in international and um, human rights movements and frequently would travel to meet with foreign dignitaries and talk about issues like apartheid, uh, the crisis in the Middle East, uh, Jonestown, the Jonestown massacre even, um, 
So I think this collection is just full of surprises. Mm-hmm. Now, this is an exhibition. How long will the exhibition be there at Emory? The exhibit is up until December 1st. Yes, December 1st. Okay, and uh, what are the hours? Uh, the the exhibit is open as long as the library is open, um, and those hours vary depending on whether or not class is in schedule, but it's, you know, always open at least 9 to 6, and often a little later than that. Okay. SCLC also got involved in some global human rights uh, activities, uh, famine in Ethiopia and, and uh, anti-apartheid uh, activism, South African. Can you just talk to us briefly about that? Actually, we have an entire quadrant that is the, uh, an entire quadrant of the exhibit is um, devoted to SCLC's efforts in terms of global human rights. Um, and as Sarah mentioned, it includes things like um, SCLC's assistance during the, the, uh, the famine in Ethiopia in the 1980s, and in particular, Joseph Lowry, Evelyn Gibson Lowry, and Dick Gregory went over the, um, to help uh, with, food, with food distribution and also to help rebuild some homes. Um, so if you remember Dick, Dick, uh, Dick Gregory's diet, his Bahamian his diet, Bahamian diet Oh yeah. Um, there, was a, there was a request um, by the Ethiopian government that he help supply a certain amount of cases of that in order to make sure that children in particular were getting uh, a good amount of nutrition during this period. And so he, uh, Joseph Lowry, Evelyn Gibson Lowry, and Dick Gregory flew over for that particular reason. And that's just one, that's one of many things we're able to show through documentation in this exhibit. Um, Sarah has a very interesting story that she that she loves to tell. I'm going to ask her to tell <laughs> about a part of the exhibit that folks should really come to see because there's some unexpected things there in terms of their work in global human rights. Now, can I uh, can our listeners uh, view some of this exhibit online? Unfortunately, um, not at the moment. Though we do hope to be able to give the exhibit a longer lifespan by putting some of it online, um, at least by the time the physical exhibit is over. However, um, we did keep a blog during the entire three years that we were working on organizing the collection, and that is still available if listeners were to Google um, Marble Blog they would find it, um, it would likely be the top hit. Also, if listeners want to Google SCLC Exhibit AJC, um, there was a lot of press around the exhibit opening, and there was an AGC article in particular that's online that does have some photographs of some of the exhibit area. Mm. Yeah, great. Uh, give us that uh, website again or the Google information again there, Michael. So if you can just Google SCLC Exhibit, AJC, the Atlanta Journal Constitution, they'll find that article. It'll come right up. Okay, AJC, Atlanta, what was that, Atlanta General, uh, Journal Conference? Yeah, the, uh, the Atlanta Journal Constitution. Oh, Constitution, got it. Okay. And Google that, and they can see a few items from um, the exhibit, SCLC. Southern Christian Leadership Conference. 
They can also Google SCLC Exhibit NPR. There's a, we have an NPR radio episode that was also done around the exhibit opening. So if you wanted to hear some audio, we have audio actually integrated into this exhibit. If they wanted to hear some of that audio, if you listen to this NPR episode, it has audio. Oh, great. And they can also Google for that, National Public Radio. Right. Uh, for our listeners, uh, you are tuned to The Gist of Freedom. I've been your host, Preston Washington. Our guests have been Sarah Quigley and Michael Hall of Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia. You guys have any final comments before we leave the air? We just really want to encourage folks, if they're able, to stop by and um, view the exhibit for themselves. Um, if people are interested in um, arranging a guided tour of the exhibit, they can find um, my contact information on the website, um, and we would be happy to arrange that for them. Um, also, in particular, this exhibit tells the story of SCLC's relevancy from 1968 right up to the present, like literally up to 2012. To 2012. So. There are many things in the exhibit that we haven't talked about. For instance, like SCLC moved this national convention to Sanford, Florida to protest how the Trayvon Martin case was being handled. And so we have items in the exhibit that speak to this also. So really the point of the exhibit is to really show folks that SCLC did not close its doors past 1968 and that it actually strengthened itself on a, on a, a, a multitude of fronts in order to really try to make sure that people were being taken care of in this country and in the world more broadly. Okay. Now, uh, Sarah, what was that website address again? It's marbl.library.emory.edu. Okay, great. I want to thank you both. Uh, you've been an excellent guest, and perhaps in the future... Uh, we can get you back on to talk further a little bit more about the exhibit. And um, appreciate you very much. Michael, did you have any closing remarks? Um, again, I would really like for folks to get in and actually see this exhibit, and Sarah is very serious. If there are groups of folks out there who actually want a guided tour, we are very, very happy to do this. I mean, we created this exhibit so that it would be an interface in between the archive and the public, and it's been very good at, at doing that job already, but we would like to do more of it before December 1st. Okay. Again, I appreciate you both uh, taking time out of your busy schedules to visit with us tonight uh, here on the Guest of Freedom. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Take care, guys. You too. Bye. Bye-bye. There you have it.